0: We've been in a study series in the book of Revelation, and specifically chapters two and three, where Jesus addresses seven churches that were around in the first century uh, in a different part of the world, a very different context, but we're believing that his words to them will speak to our church today and be every bit as relevant to, to us right now. These churches that we have a map just to situate where they are, they're kind of in modern day Turkey and Asia Minor under the rule of the Roman Empire at the time, at the late first century. Seven of them, Jesus addresses them one at a time in Revelation 2 and 3, but the words are really for all the churches to read together, and for the church today as well. So we started in Ephesus two weeks ago, last week we talked about the church at Smyrna, and this week we will be in Pergamum, which you can see is a coastal city, it was a pretty prominent city in that region, it had a population about the size of Worcester, a little under 200,000 people. And there were some things that were particular to Pergamum that Jesus wants to address here. Um, So if you'll open up with me, we'll turn to Revelation chapter two, pick up where we left off in verses verse twelve. Jesus says this to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will come soon to you and will fight against you with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. This is God's word. And if this is your first pass at this, it's probably a bit confusing. I know the first time I read Revelation as a young person, I did it all by myself without any help from anyone, and it left me both terrified and deeply confused. But that's not the intention of this book, not to leave us either terrified or confused. I think it's to leave us encouraged, hopeful, and actually clear on some things. And and it relates very much to our lives now. But I will spend a fair amount of time unpacking just what in the world is going on here. There's a lot of names, a lot of references, symbolism, things like that. So I'll talk some about the context and the backdrop just to help us understand what's being talked about, what's being said, and that way we can better understand how this might speak into our lives now. But really, Revelation was not meant to be scary or overly mysterious, and the message then is very much the same message now. The Jesus speaking then is the same Jesus speaking now. And what he has to say is basically whatever is going on, no matter what the context, Jesus is still in charge. And Jesus is still on his throne and his kingdom is coming in full and his kingdom is forever like we saying earlier. It's the overarching message and the context of the believers in Pergamum was really different from ours, but the message is very much the same. So let's dive in the context a little bit. So the city of Pergamum, it's described here as the place where Satan lives. Imagine that as a label for your city. Like you, you tell people where you're from and they say, oh, I know that place. That's where Satan lives. It's like, whoa. Yeah, no, you shouldn't. And what, what is it about this place that earns it a label like that? And it's also described as the city where Satan has his throne. So what is that? There are actually a lot of different theories about what, what that throne could be. What was Satan's throne that was in Pergamum? I'll, I'll just run through a few possibilities with you. One possibility that the most prominent and big structure in the whole city of Pergamum was a giant temple to Zeus. The Greek god Zeus, and that temple had a throne in it from which it was said that Zeus ruled over the surrounding area. Uh, So that's one possibility. Another possibility is that Pergamum was a real center in the ancient world for emperor worship. It was common in the Roman Empire for people to actually worship the emperor as a god. This went back a long way Caesar Augustus declared himself to be Lord and Savior in his time. And by the time Revelation was written, it was actually becoming kind of state sponsored mandate that you have to worship the emperor as a god. So this was really widespread throughout the empire, but, but Pergamum was kind of a center of an emperor worship. Augustus had built a temple there for himself, and, and people had been worshiping, worshiping the emperor there for a long time as Lord and Savior. Um, when in fact those are titles reserved for Jesus. So that's another possibility. Another idea for Satan's throne. There was a Pergamum was a center for the cult of Asclepius Soter, which is a, a, another deity. There was a whole cult around this this god. It was uh, this means healer savior, healer savior. This, this was kind of a a cult of healing of, of mysterious healing powers that would come from this particular deity, and, and Pergamum was the place where where this had its most prominent temple. And in that temple, the biggest feature of it was a giant serpent. So some people think, oh, maybe that's where Satan has his throne. Another theory is that it's just kind of widespread idolatry altogether, that Pergamum was just a city where where all these things were happening, uh, and tons of deities being worshipped as Lord and God and healer and Savior, apart from Jesus, who, who was the rightful owner of those titles. One other possibility of where Satan has his throne would actually be the judge's seat, the judge's bench in Pergamum. It refers here to the death of Antipas, a, a faithful witness who was martyred for his faith, for being faithful to Jesus. And, and people have been persecuted ever since the beginning of the church, suffered great things for their faith in Jesus. But by the, again, by the time Revelation was written, this was becoming state-sponsored. And reinforced through the powers that be, reinforced through the courts, and so and Pergamum was a place where uh, Christians, in the in the one place where they might have legal recourse and protection from persecution in the courts, that were actually sentencing and condemning them to execution. Uh, so that was a way that Satan was powerfully at work against the church. So maybe just an unjust court system was Satan's throne, or one other possibility is just F. All of the above. Could just, you know, the sum total of all these things just kind of make it a place that, that gets the city a label where Satan lives. Could be. I'm not sure exactly what the, the throne of Satan being referred to here is, but it's important to know that all of these are possible because all of these were true of Pergamum. So to, to look at them gives us an idea of what it was like there, what it might have been like to be a Christian there, what it might have been like to be associated with a church there in this place. It was tough. This was a tough place to be a follower of Jesus. To say the least, it was not easy to identify as a Christian in this city. And so this church is commended by Jesus for sticking it out. They've, they've not given up. They've not renounced their faith in him. They have remained true to him to an extent. They, they haven't just folded up shop. Maybe others would have said, this is too much, this is too hard. Like, forget this Christian thing, forget this church thing, we just can't do it. But this church hasn't done that. They haven't folded up shop, they haven't quit. And They're continuing on, continuing to at least acknowledge some kind of faith in Jesus. And they're commended for that because it's tough. It's under some pretty adverse circumstances. And it's not kind of the way most people are living life there. Yet, Jesus has some words of warning for this church. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There's a strong warning for this church, even as they're continuing to stick it out, um, I was trying to think of how to summarize the warning that Jesus gives in this passage. And I thought back to um, a conference I went to a couple of years ago, a global Christianity conference. And the main speaker there was a man from China who'd, who lived through many decades of, of persecution in that church. Pastor Tom referred last week to the Chinese church, which underwent tremendous persecution throughout the 20th century and beyond. But at the same time has seen unprecedented growth. Like it's been an explosion of growth and spreading the gospel there. And this speaker said something I'll never forget. He, he says, look, persecution will never kill the church, but a diluted gospel will. Persecution will never kill the church. And you could see why he'd, he'd say that coming from his context in China. But he's, he was saying, you know, the greater threat is not anything external, not any external opposition to the church. The greatest threat to the health and vitality of the church is actually diluting the gospel, The message, the good news of Jesus that's at the foundation of what the church is and what it has to offer the world. If you dilute that, if you kind of subtract from it or add to it, then suddenly the church does lose its health and vitality and and can die. We can't subtract from it or add to it. The good news that Jesus suffered, died, rose again, and is seated at the right hand of God and is coming again to, to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. We can't add to or subtract to that message, whether by downplaying our own need for being saved in the first place or whether by adding other methods by which we could be saved or save ourselves or by downplaying his lordship in different areas of our lives, by saying he's lord but not actually living that way or not letting him rule over some of our ways of thinking or being. All these ways are different ways to dilute the gospel and that, according to the speaker, according to Jesus, to the church of Pergamum, is actually the greater threat to the health of the church. Persecution couldn't kill the church at Pergamum. It's still standing, even in the face of of horrific persecution. It's not gone. But the thing that really could kill it is actually not an external threat, but an internal threat. It's people among the church holding to false teaching. And that is what Jesus warns them about so strongly, warning against false teaching that could actually kill the church. This is a warning that, that was given to that church but echoes all throughout the centuries. It's, an, it's really the greatest threat to the health and vitality and life of the churches is, is from within and the temptation to dilute the very gospel message upon which the church is built in the first place. I'm a a student of revival history, and in particular, uh, student revivals. I've, I've worked for 17 years with a campus ministry called InterVarsity, and I long to see a dynamic work of God on the secular colleges and universities of our land. And I, and I work at the secular colleges and universities in New England, where some might say where Satan lives. Maybe that's a little dramatic, but you know, I would say the gospel is not quite trending in, the, in this setting. And so, you know, the temptation to compromise is is high just for the sake of being respectable, being liked, and really having a place at the table in the college and university setting. It's it's definitely a temptation, but it's important to learn from history. Did you know that in 1905, there was actually a massive revival among the colleges and universities of our country, starting in New England and all, all the way throughout the United States, a massive revival where scores of students came to faith in Jesus or had a childhood faith reawakened where they repented of their sins and turned to Jesus. And there was a tremendous outward result of this. Tons of young people giving their lives and their vocations to service in the kingdom of God in different ways. Two movements at the heart of this revival. One was the student volunteer movement out of which thousands of students after a dynamic transformation in college gave their lives to missionary work. Most people who've taken the gospel from the West into places that till then hadn't heard of it or translated the Bible Bible into languages that had yet to have it in their language came out of the student volunteer movement. Thousands of young people mobilized to give their lives for service in God's kingdom. The other movement at the heart of the, the student revival was the YMCA. Believe it or not, the YMCA was a dynamic presence on college and university campuses, bringing the gospel, doing evangelism, and calling people to faith in Jesus, and universities all over the country. However, none of those things are still happening, neither of them. The student volunteer movement um, disappeared as quickly as it came. As a matter of fact, from its peak, the point where it was at its, its kind of highest involvement, it took only 20 years until the student volunteer movement didn't exist on campus anymore, And the YMCA, it took one decade uh, for them to go from 30,000 college students involved in YMCA Bible studies to 4,000 in one decade. Rapid decline, and then soon after that, it just doesn't exist on campus anymore. The Y is still doing awesome things in our city. Uh, I love the Y, I'm grateful for it every day, but as a positive force for evangelism and spiritual transformation on college campuses just completely ceased to exist. And the reason was not persecution. It was not any outward hostility from the, the campuses themselves, but it was an internal thing—a willingness to compromise and to dilute the gospel. Because then, as now, the gospel is not exactly trending in the latest ideas of the enlightened modern thinking that was in vogue on campus. And and these ministries were successful, and they had a place at the table. They want to maintain the place at the table, so kind of were tempted to just downplay certain things that the Bible teaches, downplay certain aspects of Christian faith. He had like the miracles and stuff. I know that doesn't jive with the scientific mentality of the early 20th century, so they kind of downplay that stuff. Uh, really for the sake of maintaining a place at the table, but ironically, they lost their place at the table altogether. And it wasn't an opposition from the campus. They didn't draw any opposition from campus. I think they actually drew opposition from God because they were no longer standing on the gospel that they were sent to bring to campus. So, I need to remember that in our own ministry now, uh, even when it's thriving. It's not because we're any better than SVM or YMCA. Uh, as a matter of fact, we could eas- just as easily disappear from campus if we dilute the gospel. And this church could die in Pergamum. Jesus is serious, like, I know, you've held on. That's great, I commend you for it, but you've got to stop holding to these false teachings because that's the thing that could take you down. He names a few things. One, he talks about the teaching of Balaam. Some among you hold to the teaching of Balaam. And there wasn't actually a guy named Balaam in Pergamum teaching false things. Balaam is is kind of a type, like an archetype, meaning a false teacher who promotes bad belief or ungodly practice. He's referred to also in the book of 2 Peter and in the book of Jude, who talk about the way of Balaam or Balaam's error. And they're talking about people within the church teaching false things or holding to, to false beliefs and promoting ungodly practice. And they get labeled as Balaam. And that's what is happening here as well. Actual Balaam is a figure in the Old Testament in the book of Numbers, chapters 22 to 24. There's a character named Balaam. And it's a long story in Numbers. We won't go through it. It's kind of a wacky story, to be honest. There's a talking donkey and other interesting details. I won't try to explain, but I'll try to summarize the story as quick as I can. So in Numbers, there was a kingdom called Moab, and their king was Balak. And he wanted to fight the armies of Israel, the people of God, and take them down militarily. So he hires a prophet named Balaam to say, hey, can you curse Israel for me and declare victory for Moab so that we can take them down And Balaam tries, but then he says to Balak, actually, no, I can't, because the Lord is with these people. And if the Lord is with these people and the Lord is on their side, then you actually can't beat them. I'm sorry. So I I can't declare victory for you because you can't take them down militarily. It's not going to happen. But then what happens immediately after that is in Numbers chapter 25, in the very beginning, And the men of Israel are described this way. The men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to sacrifice to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and the Lord's anger burned against them. So in numbers, it was not an external threat that could take down the people of God. The Moabite army couldn't stand Couldn't stand against them if God was on their side. But here's what could take them down. Sexual immorality and pagan worship. uh, uh, Sacrificing to other gods. And the two really go hand in hand. One kind of leads to another. And and they're very intertwined in the Old Testament. It begins with a form of sexual immorality. Of stepping outside of the bounds that, that Jesus intends for our sexuality. And in this particular case, it's men who are Part of the people of God who worship the Lord, who are getting involved, shall we say, with people who worship other gods. And God had clearly said, don't do that. If you worship me, if you're part of my people, then don't, don't yoke yourself to people who worship other gods, because sure enough, they're going to get you to worship those other gods, too. And sure enough, that's what happens. These relationships lead people into you know, bailing on God and, and worshiping Baal instead And this becomes a real thorn in the side of the people of God for centuries to come. The worship of Baal continues to eat away at their spiritual health and vitality. And the worship of Baal leads them even further into sexual immorality because the temple rites that would take place around the worship of Baal were oftentimes sexual in nature with cult prostitution and things like that. And that just led people further away from the Lord and for his intentions for them. So it's a cycle that kept perpetuating itself. And that was true then, and it was true in Pergamum. Some of the false teaching, the teaching that labeled Balaam's teaching, was leading people in, in these exact ways. There were so many feasts and celebrations in Pergamum devoted to other gods and the worship of other gods. And a lot of that had, had sexual overtones to it as well. And these were particular temptations for the church in Pergamum. To you know, hold on to the naming the name of Jesus and identifying as part of the church, but to still take part in some of these idol-worshiping feasts. Take part in some of the fun. Take part in some of the sexual practices of the culture around them. And Jesus is warning them, like that is the thing that, that is really a threat to you right now. Don't do it. Don't hold to the teaching of Balaam. You can imagine the temptation. Like, oh, but it's, come on, it's hard enough being a Christian in Pergamum. No one else is doing this. Like, at least we're going to church. At least we're talking about Jesus. Like, can't we still have a little idol feast over here? can we indulge in a little sexual immorality over there? I mean, no one else is even doing any of the good stuff we're doing. Like, can we hold on to this? And, And Jesus says, no. Don't hold on to that. And don't hold. Some of you also are holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And this was a particular false teaching that was prevalent in the early church. You could basically summarize it this way, that, that the grace and forgiveness of God offered a license for immorality. Like, it's not that bad if you, if you sin because God forgives sin. And, and so like, go ahead, as a matter of fact, maybe if you sin more, it brings more glory to God because he has more sin to forgive. and That makes him look good. Like you've been forgiven and and God will forgive you. You don't have to worry because he's such a gracious and forgiving God. So go ahead and do what you want and know that he'll forgive you. That is a diluted gospel. It's got an element of the true gospel in it. Yeah, God is gracious. Yeah, God forgives sins. But it takes it and twists it and, and says that, oh, so then you can do whatever you want knowing that God will forgive you. God forgives sins so that we can be set free from the power of sin. And lives lives that bring honor and glory to him. Not so that we can keep doing whatever the heck we want to. It's a diluted gospel. And people in Pergamum were holding to it. And it was a threat to their well-being and to their survival. And maybe they were doing it in hopes of surviving in a difficult and hostile culture. But in the end, it was not going to help them survive. It was actually going to destroy them. The teaching of the Nicolaitans, and now a couple weeks ago, Lou talked about the church at Ephesus, and and Jesus talked about the practices of the Nicolaitans as something else to oppose. So the teaching of the Nicolaitans, the practices of the Nicolaitans, they really go hand in hand. They really go hand in hand. Our, Our teaching and our practice, the teaching that we receive, the teaching that we sit under and allow to inform our lives, has absolutely practical implications. It's not just head stuff or what we think or what we believe, but Allowing ourselves to be taught in certain ways has practical outcomes for how we live. Our beliefs and our behavior go hand in hand, and so that's why Jesus is, is so intent on, on correcting their beliefs and their teaching, because our beliefs and our teaching aren't just intellectual things, but they have real implications for how we live, how we practice, how we treat one another. Belief and practice, belief and behavior, they go hand in hand. Whatever we sit under and allow to shape and form us has practical outcomes in how we live. And there's no better way to, to really know what we believe than to look at how we behave. We may say we believe in forgiveness, but if we hold on to a grudge and there's someone that we're refusing to, to forgive, then, well, maybe we don't believe in forgiveness as much as we say. We may say we believe all people are created in the image of God, but there are particular people or individuals or categories of people that we think are inferior to us and our way of doing things, then we really don't actually believe that all people are made in the image of God. We may say we believe Jesus is Lord and King, but if we refuse to submit to his direction and his leadership in any area of our lives, then I don't know, do we really actually believe that? So our beliefs and our behavior are actually one kind of package deal. And so Jesus is very concerned for having a, a, a right view, a right understanding, a right Concern for truth and good teaching. Don't hold to the teaching of the Balaams, the Nicolaitans. Don't do it. I think the key word here is hold to. Hold to is the verb. There are some who hold to the teachings of these false, these false teachers. That's the important thing here. So a concern for truth is not just about being like doctrine police or splitting hairs theologically or, or things like that. And we certainly can't have a concern for truth without love. Lou helpfully reminded us a couple of weeks ago of the centrality of love in the Christian life. That, like to have truth and uh, concern for truth and to speak truth without love is not helpful at all. But on the flip side, to really love somebody, to really love a church, we've got to have concern for the truth to really love and care for a church. And I'll tell you, I love this church. I love this church more than I could say. And I can speak for Pastor Tom and the other leaders when I say, we love you. We love you so much. It's incumbent upon us to be concerned for the truth and to not shy away from teaching the fullness of the gospel and to not dilute the gospel. And you can count on us to be committed to that as best we can. Because we love you. But this isn't actually addressed to the leaders. This is addressed to the church as a whole. There are some among you, there are those among you who hold to these teachings and these practices. This, this concerns everybody. And again, it's not that we become doctrine police or go on witch hunts or things like that. And it's not even about accumulating more knowledge. But I think it's actually about a posture. Concern for the truth is, is a posture. And again, this verb, hold to is really key here. The Greek verb is krateo, which means to kind of continue to hold on to, to insist on holding on to, to refuse to let go. Try to illustrate what this verb looks like in practice. Imagine households across America where there are young kids with electronic devices, say a a tablet, and there are times when a parent, a good loving parent, needs to Say, all right, time to give up the tablet. It's time to do something else now. Go to bed or do a, an active thing. Like, time to be done. Uh, in an ideal world, child hands over the tablet. Like, okay, here you go. Or maybe with some reluctance or some sadness, like, oh, I was just about to beat level 10, but you know, I, I recognize your authority as the parent and that you know best and that you love me. So, so here, either way. But when things, when things go bad, it's when the, the request for the tablet causes the little fingers to actually tighten their grip on the device and crateo it to say, no, you can't have this, and I'm not giving it up. The longer this goes on, is that's when we have problems. Because we're getting the tablet one way or the other, but it goes a whole lot better when you just hand it over with open hands rather than crateo the device. And people were holding to these teachings in Pergamum. It's not a case of they just didn't know any better. They're ignorant. No one had really taught them. But I think it was a case of you know, the words of Jesus were coming to them and, and a kind of a steadfast refusal to let go of the things that they needed to let go of. Holding to these teachings. So it, it's really a posture. It's not about Knowing everything, not everybody here has to have a master's degree in theology. It's not about accumulating more and more knowledge to have a concern for the truth. It's about a posture of letting the truth speak to you in a way that is is open-handed. Some of you are just beginning to get to know what the Bible says. And you can practice this by just simply having a posture of open-handedness. When the words of Jesus come to you and speak to you to say, okay, have your way, when the words of Jesus demand you change your way of thinking, change your way of behavior, give up a certain habit or practice or idea, maybe one you've had for a long time, when it comes to you with that kind of demand to, to not hold on and say, no, you can't have this, but to say, okay, even if it's hard and even if it is with some sadness or, or reluctance, to know and to trust in the good and loving authority of God who is asking this of you. Some of you are really familiar with Jesus' word. You've been studying it for decades and decades. You know it inside and out, but this still is a posture you need to have because His word will continue to ask of you obedience and faith, letting go of things, letting go of your long standing beliefs that are contrary to His word, letting go of practices and attitudes. And we still need to, no matter how much we know, have this posture of open hands rather than holding on. Jesus invites this church to let go. And more specifically, he actually commands this church to repent, if we're honest. Repent, therefore, or I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So, this isn't just a suggestion. Like, you know, I, that, that's Nicolaitan teaching. It's not that great. I wish you wouldn't read that stuff. This is, look, if you don't let go of this stuff and, and stop holding on to these false beliefs, I'm going to come and fight you. Wow, I mean, this is this is serious. This is this is no small thing. And it, and if Jesus is against us, it doesn't matter who else is for us or against us. Like we're not going to last. We're going to have to give up the tablet at one point or another. it go a whole lot better if we do it now. All things are going to have to submit to the authority of Jesus and His Word eventually. And this call to repent is a call to submit to Jesus and His Word now. Submit to the authority of Jesus and his word now. He talks about this sword. I'm going to come and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. He introduces himself as the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. A sword in Roman times was the symbol of authority. The sword of Rome was the ultimate authority figure in people's lives. And Jesus is saying here, I'm the one who holds the sword. I'm the one with the true and real authority over life and death and everything. And the sword here also refers to his word specifically. Hebrews 4 refers to the Word of God as a sharp, double-edged sword. Ephesians 6 refers to the Word of God as a sword. And here, it's the sword of my mouth. Just to make it really clear that the authority of Jesus is in His Word, in what He says is right, what He says to be true. His Word is authority. And we're all going to submit to the authority of His Word. All things will, eventually. But the invitation is to submit to the authority of His Word now. Not Later or on your deathbed, as if you even know when that is. Not after you have your fun for a little while and then settle down and grow up, whenever that is. Now, submit to His Word now. And again, it's not about how much you know necessarily, but when you read Jesus' Word, when He calls you to act in obedience and faith, when He wants to correct our way of thinking, our attitudes, our behaviors, our habits to respond with open hands rather than holding on tighter. And that's a journey that will go on for all of us, whether we're brand new at this thing or whether we've been at it for a long time. When I first came to faith, there were certainly things I needed to let go of from the way I'd been living life and the way I'd been approaching life. And now, 20 years later, there are things I need to continue to let go of The way I'm living my life and the way I approach my life, when the word of Jesus speaks really into my life, I need to have open hands. The temptation is still always there to hold on. In some ways, it's the same thing now as 20 years ago. There is a particular false teaching that I've been raised with and pretty much everyone in the West has been raised with, that our lives are our own to do whatever we want to with. That was ingrained in me from the time I was old enough to understand anything. You can do anything you want. You can be whoever you want. Your life is your life to do with what you want to. Life is about your pursuit of happiness. Jesus' word doesn't say that. His word is that our lives are for him to do with what he wants to. And that is a a false teaching that I've had to let go of so many times as his word speaks into my life. I imagine it's true for many of you as well. But there is a promise on the other side of this warning. It's a a harsh warning, I'll give you that, but there is a promise. The one who is victorious, as in the one who, who really does not dilute the gospel, who holds to the truth, I will give some of the hidden manna. I'll also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. I'll be real quick about this. Manna in the Old Testament was was God's abundant provision to his people. When, When he was feeding them with manna, they never lacked anything, never lacked a thing, full and complete provision. A white stone meant many things in that culture, but one thing was a wedding invitation. People would get invitations to really special and prominent events with their name engraved on a white stone, a personalized invitation. And so the invitation for the church at Pergamum is, don't settle for these idolatrous feasts that everyone around you is having. Take your invitation that I'm giving you, your personal invitation with a, with a name on it, on a white stone, to an everlasting, abundant feast in the kingdom of God. You may be, feel like you're missing out right now when everyone around you is taking part in these feasts honoring these different gods and, and involving these different practices, but you're not gonna miss out on the one feast and the one celebration that really matters there's actually an invitation on it with with your name on it or with God's name on it. Nobody really knows. It could be a name God gives us, a new name that we've never heard before, or it could be a name of God that, that reflects the level of knowledge and intimacy with him that we've yet to understand or experience. Either way, there is a deep invitation to intimacy with God forever at the one feast and the one invitation that counts more than any other one where we'll never lack anything. It will never actually miss out on anything, no matter what we feel like we might be missing out on in the short term. It's a beautiful promise to this church. Don't worry about what you might miss out on now. Keep your hands open before me. I will provide for you in every way and forever. So I want to invite us now to respond to Jesus with some open hands. His word, both revealed here, written in scripture and and spoken into our lives today, will always call us to let go of something. Certain ideologies, belief systems, practices, desire for approval, particular behaviors or habits that maybe are popular but are ultimately destructive to the people of God. He's inviting you to have open hands in the face of his word. When his word comes to us, will we hold on tighter to what we're clinging to or will we open up and submit to his loving and gracious authority? So I'd invite you to actually close your eyes and pray with me. And if there is something that the Lord is bringing up for you now, something as you've been getting to know his word Something that you realize you've been holding on to. Maybe a grudge. Maybe an unhealthy relationship. Maybe a, a prejudice or an attitude, an ideology. Maybe a teaching that you learned somewhere else but not from God's word. A particular habit. Maybe just simply control over your life, over your circumstances, your future, your money, your decisions. Whatever you're holding on to, just just imagine that. And and if it's helpful for you, there's nothing magic about this, but I actually encourage you to make two fists with your hands to, to represent the thing you're holding on to. And if you're willing to let Jesus have his way, and you're willing to let his word correct you today, and to let go of that thinking of that practice, that thing he's inviting you to let go of, to actually open up your hands to him. And to receive what he has for you instead. Let me pray for you. Lord, um, I thank you so much for this church that you love. That you love so much that you're willing to tell us the truth. I pray, Lord, that as we hear the truth in your word both today and, and as we go from here in the rest of our days, that we would trust you as a gracious and loving authority figure in our lives who, who truly does hold the power and authority over all things, over life and death, but who truly does love us and have our best in mind. I pray we'd have a right picture of you so we could gladly hand over the things you ask us to hand over even if we really like them. Help us to trust you, to trust that you know best and to to submit to your right and good authority in our lives. I pray, Lord, for anyone here who is letting go, who, who is inviting you to just take something now that you're asking of them, to change their minds, to change a way of thinking, a way of being. That, Lord, you would um, fill them with your spirit that you would continue to make your word beautiful in our lives and that we would submit to it and protect this church Lord. Lord, We love what you're doing here and if there's anything that we are holding to that would get in the way of what you want to do in and through us we invite you to bring that up and we ask that you would keep our hands open before you that we could be all you want us to be for now, for our city, and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.